Now, if you're new to Kingwood, a few years ago we started a new tradition. Each summer, we take a book of the Bible and we study it. And so today we'll start a new book uh, for this summer. We've studied Philippians, we've studied Habakkuk, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We've studied uh, uh, Philippians, we've studied Ephesians. And last summer we did a series called All In, and it was a study on the book of James. So really, really great study. We heard a lot of great feedback on it. In January of this year, I sent a survey out to uh, everyone at Kingwood, and we asked several questions about your spiritual life. You know, how's your devotions? How's this? How's that? One of the questions was, what series last year made the biggest impact on your life? Now, we could see the results coming in. All we couldn't tell necessarily who answered what. We could see the results coming in in real time. And for days and days and days and days and days, the number one series last year at Kingwood was the, the study of the book of James, all in. It was leading, 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 leading till the very last day or two. And I don't know if it's because we posted the, face on, uh, posted the link on Facebook. I don't know what changed it. But just at the end, one series passed it by four-tenths of a percent. It was the sex series. So, it would not be inaccurate for me to say to you this morning, these summer studies on the book of the Bible are almost as popular as sex. I need you to know that. So, this summer, be here with us, lock in. We're starting a new series on the book of Nehemiah. We're calling it When the Walls Are Gone. And uh, it, we're reading nearly a chapter a week. So if you want to, today we're doing chapter one. There's 13 chapters, nine weeks this summer. Not quite a chapter a week, but something like that. So if you want to read along with us, I encourage you to do that. Dig in deep and let's see what God has to say to us through the book of Nehemiah this summer. Now, I, I was thinking this week about um, five years ago, my oldest son was 13. And uh, one of his buddies uh, and his dad said, hey, uh, we're going to do a 13th birthday party for our son, so he's going to invite his 13-year-old, you know, 12 and 13-year-old friends and their dads. We're going to go. We're going to go uh, paintballing. How, how many of you ever been paintballing? You been paintballing? How, so, get lifted up. It's not. It's not a sin. Go ahead and lift it up. Yeah. Okay. All right. But maybe maybe a third of you. Okay. Paintball. Okay. So I hadn't been paintballing since I was a lot younger when it first came out. And I thought, this is terrible. I mean, this is like laser tags more fun than this. Because when it first came out, I don't know if you remember this, the, the technology wasn't very good, and you would shoot, and the, like, the ball would like arch towards somebody. You know what I'm talking about? You just hoped that they'd run under it. I mean, you know, because it wasn't really a good way to shoot anybody. And so that was my picture. That's the only time I'd ever been in my life. So I thought, eh, this, you know, it'll be okay. It'll be fun. Somebody get paint on them. It'll, it'll be cool. So we got out there on the course. They're putting all the equipment on. They're airing the guns up. Give us all the extra paintballs in the hopper. And we get out into the, uh, into the course, and it's so far, I thought, this is dumb. Why is the course this big? The guns won't even shoot that far. There's no way that we're going to be able to do this. We're going to have to scoot way up. Well, the guy said, three, two, one, and all of a sudden, do, 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 do. Paintballs start hitting behind me. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's like a machine gun. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. And they're coming at me so fast, I can hardly even see them. And I thought, man, this is, uh, this is, this is, this is changed. You know, this is like war. So I had to get in a whole different mindset, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but fortunately for me, uh, the kids decided that the funnest thing to do would be dads on sons. How many of you dads know what happened? <laughs> we said, absolutely, you go down to that end, we'll wait here. So they went down there, and they were so scared the first round, they didn't really know what to do, that they all stood back to back to back, all six of them like this. And we spread out, we were doing hand signals, spread out, we just destroyed them, killed them. 
Just absolutely murdered them. How many you know sometimes you got to teach your kids a lesson, right? We just crossfire. They're like, ah, no! So we moved on to the next course called Armageddon. Oh, how, how many, that just sounds fun, doesn't it? We moved to Armageddon. And in Armageddon, they had these big tires and this house and all kind of stuff in the middle. And you spread out high and the guy would go three, two, one. You couldn't really see very well. You just kind of peek over something. And so we got there. And I, I found this little hole in, in these boxes. And I thought, there's no way, there's no way, no way, no way, no way. Anybody can ever shoot from way down there and hit me in the soul. So I'm shooting doom, doom, doom. And all of a sudden, this paintball from one of the 13-year-olds shot right in that hole and blew up on my mask. And I had like yellow all over my mask. Shot my face back like that. And I thought, okay, they're getting better. We're going to we're gonna have to change our approach here. So, so we're sitting there, and uh, we're about to go. And, and uh, what happens is my son, who is, who is fast, he, he's there, and he's done gotten, uh, should we call it evil? He's done gotten evil. <laughs> and he's done found a way to beat us. And so all the dads, we're all crouched down like this, behind, and, and three, two, one, and nothing happens. We go, where'd they go? We're shoot, shoot, shoot. When they said three, he took off running. He ran the perimeter of the entire course faster than we thought any human could get there. He's behind us blowing our back off. Bow, 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 bow. He's just running like this. Blew my Achilles tendon off my back. Like I couldn't walk for a week like this. A paint on my back, paint in the back of my head. Just absolutely blew me up. Now, some of you moms are going, well, that's fair, right? That's what should have happened. You deserved it. Well, look, that's what it feels like when there's no protection, when there's no boundary, when there's no wall. It feels like nobody's got your back. You ever been in one of those moments in life when nobody's got your back? This is what it felt like in 445 BC to live in a city where the walls were gone. Nobody's got your back. Now, it's hard for us to understand how important those walls were for that city. This fledgling little community of survivors had been in slavery for years, and they'd been reunited with other survivors in their war-torn home, hometown. The gates were burned. The walls were gone. They were surrounded by hostile villages, not to mention wild animals and criminals. And without walls, there's no way to defend yourself. Uh, soldiers and armies and other nations could attack anytime. Uh, villains could attack. Criminals could attack. Animals could attack. It'd be hard to have crops, hard to leave your children out in the street. You never knew when you were safe. You were vulnerable from attack on every side. We don't have walls in our cities today, but we understand just as much as they did what it means to be vulnerable. We have locks on our doors. We have alarms on our cars. We have combination locks on our lockers. If you've been to an airport lately, you know what all this is about. Think about the layers of screening and security that you have to move through to get on a plane. Public high schools have a small police force. I was in a public high school security office a couple years ago, and uh, they were kind of showing me around how it all worked. And you wouldn't believe the video surveillance and how they monitor chat rooms and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and even post false accounts on there to try to see if they can see what's going on with the kids and get It is unbelievable and high tech. You have metal detectors in high school doors, doors that lock behind you when you go into the building. It's a whole different world. We know what it's like to be vulnerable. We know what it feels like for the walls to be gone. This doesn't even to begin to touch identity theft or internet scams or cybersecurity. How many of you in the last year have gotten a call from the IRS saying that you're in trouble? How many? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Look around. Look around. You see that? How many of you? Maybe, maybe 20, 15, 20 of you have gotten a call? Here's the last one I got. Uh, yes, 
you, you owe the IRS, you know, back taxes, whatever, and if you don't report so-and-so, make this call, in 48 hours, the police are coming to get you. Come get me. It's a scam. It's an absolute scam. We have firewalls and viruses and passwords and PIN numbers and secret questions. And what do you do when the walls are gone? How many of you remember where you were at when the terrorist attack happened on 9-11? How many of you remember where you were at? You look around, look around. Like if you can remember, right? If you were old enough to remember, you probably remember where you were at. You can remember where you were at and what was going on. There was a universal feeling that the walls were gone. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of listening to Condoleezza Rice talk about some of the things that went on inside the president's cabinet uh, in the days following 9-11 and the stress they were under and the pressure they were under. And she said, every day after 9-11 felt like September 12th because we didn't know when the next attack was coming. It was, it was nerve-wracking because the walls had been breached. The walls were not there. They were not holding Maybe you were here uh, in April when we had the Lopers, who are missionaries to Nepal. I was talking to them at lunch after, after our missionary interview, and they have survived a catastrophic earthquake in Nepal. They were there at the time, and now they're home on furlough, and they'll be returning soon. And she said to us, it was so um, stressful because what you think about a natural disaster is it happens and it's over and everybody goes back to what you're doing, right? So that's not what happened. She said, in the month following the earthquake, we had 300 aftershocks. 300 aftershocks. There were nearly 10 aftershocks a day, every day for a month. And she said, every day for a month felt like the day the earthquake hit. Because you didn't know when a tremor started when it would end. Is this another earthquake? So how do you sleep at night? How do you send your husband or your wife off to work or off to the market? Or how do you send your kids off to school and have six, six tremors that day? And wonder, is this going to come and kill hundreds of people or one of my family? You see what it feels like to be vulnerable, to not have that boundary, to not have that protection. What do you do when the walls are gone, when the covering has been toppled? Some of you know what that feels like in your own life. Maybe, maybe you've experienced a job loss and that, and that sense of provision is gone. Or maybe you've had a spouse that left you or your health that's given you so much freedom has disappeared. We just heard a, a, a family member of one of our church members had a fire this past week and burned their entire house to the ground. They had no insurance, and they lost everything. Uh, may, maybe, maybe you felt this vulnerability in childhood. You, maybe your parents neglected you or abused you or abandoned you. Maybe there was someone who was supposed to have your back, and now they've shared confidential information, or they've abandoned you or betrayed you. What do you do when the walls are gone? Now, to be fair... In the book of Nehemiah, the walls are gone because Israel's turned their back on God. By the way, when you turn your back on God, the walls are always gone. I said when you turn your back on God, the walls are always gone. They're always going to be gone. In America, we have turned our back on God as a people. 
We have, we have removed prayer. We've taken away the Ten Commandments. We are working diligently as a culture to erase every reference of God as fast as we can. We've turned our back on God and done everything we can do to reject the power of God's love. This is why the walls are down. And the walls were down in Nehemiah's case, too. The Jewish people became slaves of the Babylonians, who was the great uh, Babylon, the great Babylonian empire. And then the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And now Nehemiah is underneath the captivity of the Persian empire when the book starts. But the Persian king and the Babylonian king had very different philosophies about how they were going to rule the world. The Babylonian king said, I will rule through domination. The Persian king said, I will rule through favor. So what he said is, you can take your people. He didn't just say this to the Jews. He said it to a lot of different ethnicities. You can go back home. You can rebuild your town. You can rebuild your temple. You can rebuild your religion. But remember who gave you permission to do that. And that's the way he ruled is to try to rule through favor. So the Jews came back home in three waves. The second wave was led by Ezra. The third wave was led by Nehemiah. And that's the focus of our story. So the book of Nehemiah takes huge leaps in time. Uh, this book spans nearly 100 years, but it's only 13 chapters. So look, if you like cliff notes, you're in. Because this is like the cliff notes of what happened over 100 years. That's how I like to read. Give me the bottom line. If you can put it on a fortune cookie note, I'm in. Good, I like it. So if you like that kind of thing, you're going to love the book of Nehemiah. A hundred years goes by in 13 chapters. And chapter 1 is early in the story before Nehemiah returns home. He's still in Persia. So I want to show you a map so you can kind of see what the region looked like at that time. So you can see this is Persia. This orange area in the middle is the entire empire of Persia, which was gigantic. It spanned three continents, uh, Europe. It, it covered Asia and it covered Africa. Not all of it, but it spanned those three. Uh, there were, it was a massive empire. There were upwards toward 50 million people in that empire. You're talking about a gigantic empire at this time in history. You can see over here at the Mediterranean Sea, if you can see this, it doesn't have it on this map, but right where it says Tyre, Jerusalem is right there. The island of Cyprus, Jerusalem's here. If you go to the other side in the middle here, you see Babylonia, you see Persia, and there's, it's a little blurry, it's hard to see. Between Persia and Babylonia is a little town called Susa. Now, that's a very, very important city. That's where Nehemiah is when the book of Nehemiah opens. Now, Susa um, is, a, is the winter capital of Persia. How many of you like to go to the beach? How many, uh, four of you. How many of you like to go to the beach? So did they. <laughs> so the king and the king's entourage would winter They'd go on holiday in, in Susa. Susa was a beautiful city. It's kind of on the line of modern-day Iraq and Iran. It's about 100 miles from Baghdad. But it's 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. Now, that's important for you to understand in the story. So Nehemiah is in Persia. He's in Susa. He's, in, he's 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. And that's sort of where we pick the story up um, in Nehemiah chapter 1. So look at Nehemiah chapter 1 with me. In the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, capital of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. So they were over by Jerusalem. They traveled a thousand miles. They came over to, the, to Susa for some reason. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived exile and also about Jerusalem. In other words, uh, Nehemiah is saying, okay, 
Uh, the king is letting people go back home. The people that were never taken into slavery and were left behind, and the people who were in slavery all these decades and are now going back, how are they doing and how's the city? That's what he's asking. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Okay, so if you have something to take notes with, maybe take notes on an iPhone or you're going to write them down, take something out. Let me give you three things to do when the walls are gone. Number one, stay focused on God's priorities. This, to me, is one of the most amazing parts of the entire story that Nehemiah stayed focused on God's priorities. Nehemiah cared when he didn't have to care. Somehow Nehemiah managed, as a Jew, as a foreigner, to rise in the Persian Empire and to have the favor of the king and he's a thousand miles from home, he's in a condo, he's in Destin, Florida, he's looking at the white sugar sand, he sees the turquoise water, he's eating seafood and gumbo every night, he has got it made. And the guys come from his hometown and he says, how's it going over there? As he wipes the lobster off his face. And they say, it's not, it's not good at all. The easiest thing for him to do would be to say, you know, let me say a quick prayer over you. Here's some snacks. Hope it works out. That would have been, that would have been the easiest thing to do. I mean, by the way, who would have ever known? He didn't even have to ask how the people were doing. He could have just asked about his mom and his dad and his cousins and their house. He could have just asked about that and he could have finished right there. Who would have ever known if he didn't respond? Why did it matter people so far away from him were suffering? He had carved out a nice life for himself. Why not just pat them on the back and send them on their way? But the Bible says he was moved to tears. He mourned and wept and fasted. You know you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them cry. Tell a lot about a person by what makes them cry. Look, people cry when their team loses. People cry when they don't get their way. People cry when they lose their dream. People cry when you hurt them. People cry when they suffer. But not many people cry when you suffer. Not many people cry about other people suffering. Not many people cry about God's priorities not happening. Not many people cry when God doesn't get his way. Not many people cry about that. He wasn't concerned about his schedule, about his life, about his comfort, about his condo. He was focused on what moved God's heart. He was concerned about God's people. He was concerned about Jerusalem and Israel and Israel's witness to the nations and the promises of God. That's what grabbed his heart. I was so taken by the story that one of our uh, missions teams came back with from Indonesia about two or three years ago. Last week, if you were here, we had the Duncans, who are missionaries in Indonesia, and one of our jobs while we were there is to help them build a church in a village. There was a small congregation, 40, 40 maybe 50 people, and uh, 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 Indonesia is the largest Islamic nation on earth. And, and so our job was to take that congregation 
where it really had nowhere to meet. They met in homes where we're trying to give them a permanent location, build them a small building, and that would be a gigantic testimony in that region of the world. So we sent the team in, we're starting construction, and some people from another village heard about it. They were all up in arms. They were very upset, and they came over, and they threatened, and they said they're going to call the police, and they stirred up as much trouble as they could for that team, and they prevented that building from being built. Now, the pastor, some of the leaders, some of the moms, some of the workers in that church, when, when it was evident that we have got to stop construction. Because if we don't, this is gonna get, this is gonna end up being a bad testimony for Christ. So we gotta stop. So they stopped, they all went inside one of the little houses, they all sat on the floor, and the leaders and the people in that church sat over lunch and cried. And they cried and they cried and they cried. And our team didn't know what to do, so our team went in and sat on the floor with them and cried with them. Just cried. Prayed with them. But look, they were so concerned that that church was not being established because they had found forgiveness and freedom in Jesus and their neighbors and their friends and their relatives weren't finding that because the work that God wanted to do in that city had come to a stop. And it grabbed their heart and it burdened them and it concerned them because they were focused on God's priorities. When is the last time you saw someone in an American church cry because God's work wasn't being done? When's the last time you seen an American church up in arms, concerned, crying, weeping, broken, disturbed because God's priorities in a city weren't happening? But this is where Nehemiah was. And by the way, when the Duncans were here last week, they reported that that building has now been finished and that church has doubled. Is that incredible? Because somebody kept God's priorities first. Now, when Nehemiah heard the story, he was broken and his soul was shocked. And he said, this is wrong. I don't know if you know or not, in America, the walls are gone. In our city, the walls are gone. The percentage of Christians in America is shrinking. The percentage of people in America who claim no religion has risen to 18%. From 2000 to 2010, the number of Islamic mosques in America has almost doubled. Now, that's not a political statement. That's a statement about eternity. That's an eternal statement. Close to half the people who use the Internet visit pornographic websites. According to the FBI, sex trafficking of adults and children is the fastest-growing business of organized crime in America. In America. And it's the third-largest enterprise in the world. What do you think are God's priorities? When he looks at this city, when he looks at Shelby County, and he watches the way Shelby County, Alabama, is turning its back on God, what do you think God's priorities are? I can tell you what they are. His priorities are eternity. They are eternal priorities. Have you embraced God's eternal priorities? 
Do you and God cry about the same things? Or do you and he cry about different things? What would you sacrifice for God's priorities? What would you risk for God's work to be done? Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I can give you incredible scriptural advice today if you're in a place where your walls are down, where your walls are gone, where you're struggling, where you have a need, where things aren't going right. Seek first the kingdom of God. When you're in a jam, when you're in a crisis, when you're in a mess, when you don't know what to do, seek first the kingdom of God. And somehow, all these other things have a way under God's care working out. We will know renewal when our priorities are God's priorities. Here's the second thing you do when the walls are down. Pray first. We have a saying that, that, uh, that concerns me. It goes something like this. Well, I guess that we've done everything we can do. Now there's nothing left to do but pray. Why, why, why do we pray last? Why do we wait until we've done everything else we know to do, and then we say, well, there's nothing else that we can do but pray? It's almost like throw a penny in a wishing well. Well, I hope it works out. Do a little prayer. Throw a little prayer up there. Maybe something good will happen. That wasn't Nehemiah's instinct at all. One of the things I love about Nehemiah, you're going to love this about Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. He wasn't even a religious leader. He was just a man who had a real relationship with God. And you're going to love him. You ought to be able to identify with him perfectly. Just an average guy with a real relationship with God. When he heard the, word, the walls were gone, his instinct was to turn to the one that he knew so well. To turn to God in prayer. When the walls are gone, here's the question, how do we pray? Prayer is one of those words we throw around almost like good luck. But it's a lot harder or more complicated when you start to do it. Not because prayer is hard, because we make it hard. Because <laughs> who knows how to pray? Nobody really knows how to pray. We have to learn how to pray. I'm so uh, comforted by Jesus' disciples' question when, when he was on earth to say, uh, okay, we've walked with you for three years. <laughs> we've watched you eat, sleep, walk, teach, do miracles, heal, turn water to wine, raise the dead, uh, heal the sick, uh, but we figured something out. We don't really know how to pray. Would you teach us how? Because it looks like you got it. And then, he, and then he began to teach them. So I'm comforted by the fact that the people that physically walk with Jesus day in and day out didn't get it either. Because I look at prayer sometimes and I say, I'm not, I, I feel like I ought to be better at this than I am. And so let me give you out of Nehemiah here, this will be something you can take with you. This will be something that will be easy to remember. I see a little formula in here that will help us with prayer when the walls are gone, when things are tough, when you're overwhelmed, when you need to seek God for something, when you need to get in touch with God. Let me give you a quick little formula for prayer that I see right out of the book of Nehemiah. Here's the first thing. Look up. Look up. When the walls are gone, when you're uncovered, when things are broken, the first place you need to get to in prayer is not to the problem. The first place you need to get to in prayer is not what worries you. The first place you need to get to in prayer is to God. So look up. Verse 5 says, Lord, the God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his... You see what he's doing? Look, this isn't about the walls. This isn't about Jerusalem. This isn't about Nehemiah. This isn't about his friends. This isn't about his family. This isn't about his relatives. This is the first and foremost about God. And he took his eyes off everything else and he lifted it up and he said, God, you are great. And God, you are awesome. And God, you are faithful to your people and to the love of your people. Would you take a minute this morning? Would you just close your eyes for a minute? And would you do that with me? Would you just close your eyes and turn your mind and your heart away from everything around you? And would you just turn your heart toward God right now? In your spirit, would you just look up and would you just pray this with me? Say it directly to God. God, you are great. God, you are awesome. God, you are faithful. God, you are a covenant God who loves your people, who loves me. Man, check that out. That's prayer. That's called prayer. So when Nehemiah took this burden to God of weeping and fasting and praying, his first prayer was to look up. Then he looked in. You see this move all over the Bible. The greatness of God always reveals my flaws. In other words, I can't see God more clearly without seeing me more clearly. And when, when, I, when that happens, I realize two things. One, I realize, God, you are awesome, and I am not awesome. <laughs> and those always come together. You are awesome, and I am not awesome. Verse 6 and 7, Nehemiah said, I confess the sins we Israelites, who's very specific, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant. Proverbs says the heart of all things is most deceitful. This is the part of prayer where you say there is a problem and the problem is me. It's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? You don't know how to pray? I'll tell you how to pray. Repeat this after me. There is a problem and the problem is me. You just prayed. Incredible. God, show me my sin. Show me my evil. Show me my darkness. Show me where I'm not like you and help me. Look up, look in, and look back. What has God done in the past? We forget so quickly. We get in a jam, and God rescues us gloriously, and he never fails, and he's faithful. And then we get to the next one, and we act like he's never done anything. But God is so faithful, and our memory is so short. What were his promises to you? What does his word say? Look at verse 8 in chapter 1. Remember. Now, this is, this is Nehemiah praying to God. He's saying, God, remember. Now, watch. Remember what? Remember the instruction you gave Moses. This is important. If you are unfaithful, this is what God told Moses to tell the people. If you people are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And guess what happened? For decades, they've been ripped out of their land. Their, their, the walls are gone. The gates are burned. Their people are divided. They're drug off into slavery into Babylon. Now the Persians have taken them over. And for decades, God's word has come true. You turn your back on me and the walls are down. And that's what happened. 
But, you say, Nehemiah saying, God, remember this too. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are on the farthest horizon, even if they're on the moon, what does he say? I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What God is saying is the people after decades of rebellion and stubbornness and sinfulness have repented. They are turning their hearts back. I am bringing them back to Jerusalem and I am building a city and I am building a people for my own name's sake. That's what, that is the key promise in the entire book of Nehemiah. That's what the, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is about, that promise being fulfilled. That's what the book of Ezra is about also. So sometimes you hear people say something like this. When I pray, I remind God of what his word says. I, 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 don't, I don't really like that kind of prayer. And, and I'll tell you why I don't like that kind of prayer. To me, that sounds like God didn't really want to do this, but I cornered him. I grabbed his word, and I showed him where it said it. I know he'd forgotten because he's getting old. I know he'd forgotten, so I showed him where it said it. I whipped all the way to the back. I know the word probably as good as he does, and I cornered him on it, and I'm like a lawyer. I cross-examined him. I ninja him in there, and I got him to do what he said he would do, and he didn't really want to do it, but he said, okay, okay, you caught me. I didn't really want to do that, but now you bring my word back to my face. I guess I'll have to do it. That's what that feels like to me. Let me tell you how I would rather say it. Remind God of his promises so you can remember them. He didn't forget. You did. And I did. Remind God of his promises so you can remember them and you can return to them. It is not he who has left his promise. It is we who have left his promise. And it is us who needs to return. And it is us who needs to remember. Look up, look in, look back, look ahead. Nehemiah is no religious put on. He's a practical man. And I love that about him. Nehemiah believes in prayer, but he also believes that you cannot pray forever. There comes a point you got to stop praying, you got to start doing something. This is Nehemiah's mind frame. He's not a religious leader, he's not a priest, not a prophet, not a Pharisee, not any of that. He's a practical guy. And he knows that there comes a point you got to stop praying, you start doing something. You have to mix prayer with action. So when he looks ahead, he's not looking centuries down the road. He's not looking decades. He's not looking next year. He doesn't have a five-year plan. He don't have a three-year plan. His prayer is, oh, God, today. How many of you think that's a pretty good prayer? God, today. And look, you can see in verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success when? Today. By granting him favor in the presence of this man. So here's what Nehemiah, maybe you've prayed this before. He's praying something like this. God, I'm not even sure this is the right thing to do, but I'm just here putting you on notice. I'm about to do it. And if I'm wrong, please stop me. If I'm about to say it wrong, please help me. But this is what I think you want me to do, and I've been praying. I've been, he, he fasted and weeped and prayed for a month. But then he said, today's the day. I'm acting today. I'm mixing some action with this prayer. I'm mixing some action with this faith. I'm about to leave this room, and I'm going straight to see this guy. And, and I, need to, I need you to help me. If it's, if it's wrong, stop me. And look what he says. And grant me favor in the presence of this man. Who's this man? 
So interesting that he worded it this way. This man is the king of Persia who's leader of 50 million people. And what is Nehemiah telling us when he says, give me favor with this man? Here's what he's saying. This man doesn't ultimately make the decisions about what happens. This man is a man like every other man who really makes the decisions as you. It's not the president. It's not Congress. It's not the Senate. It's not even America. Who really decides what rises and falls on this planet is you. And so grant me favor as I go and let your work be done. So start your day with prayer and say, God, today, today, help me with what I'm about to go do today. So here's the third thought. Stay focused on God's priorities, pray first, and remember God's providence. Now, providence isn't a word that we use a lot, so let let me define it. Providence means there's nothing that God doesn't see. Providence means there's nothing that God doesn't know. God is not caught off guard like we are. God doesn't forget to factor certain variables in his decision making. Don't you ever wish when you made some decisions that you would have had all the information before you made them? Have you ever had that that feeling? You go, oh, well, if I'd have known that. God's never had that feeling. Never had that feeling, not once. He always knows everything. Don't you ever wish if I would have known this was going to happen, if I'd have known the future, I wouldn't have done that? Oh, I wish I'd have known that was going to happen. If I'd have known the future, I wouldn't have done that. God's never had that feeling. God knows the future. God knows everything. Providence means that God sees everything and knows everything and has planned things in such a way that his will gets done. He cares for us and guides the details of our life in a way that will accomplish his purposes. In the end, God always wins and God's people always win. That's what providence is. It's God's care. You ever heard someone say, When I lost that job, I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But now that I look back, I realize it was the best thing that ever happened. Do you think God had that view? No. God knew when you lost a job, it was the best thing that ever happened to you. That's called providence. God knows. He organizes those things. There's a little sentence at the end of the book of Nehemiah. uh, at the end of chapter 1 that finishes chapter 1 and next week we'll start chapter 2. There's a little sentence that seems like a postscript, an afterthought, uh, a whatever. Seems unimportant. But it is pregnant with meaning and I want to show you the meaning as we close. Nehemiah said, oh and by the way, I was the cupbearer. It's a cupbearer. Cupbearer's the guy that would drink what the king drank before he drank it to make sure it wasn't poison, it wasn't going to kill him. The cupbearer was the one who would taste the king's food to make sure before the king ate it that it wasn't poison and the king would die. That was who the cupbearer was. But the cupbearer wasn't just like a maid or a, or a cook. No, 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 no. The cupbearer had tremendous influence. Now, now follow this. He had the king's signet ring. He could sign things in the king's name. He had administrative authority in the kingdom. The the cupbearer was a close confidant of the king. There was nobody on earth closer to the king. This is the guy eating the king's food. There's nobody on earth closer to the king than the king's wife. The king, his wife, 
and the cupbearer. It was that order. He was the third most influential person in the kingdom of Persia of 50 million people. To say, oh, by the way, I was the cupbearer is like to say, oh, by the way, I was the chief, chief of staff. Oh, by the way, I was the, the uh, vice president. Oh, by the way. Now, here's a question. How did a Jew, how did a foreigner, how did a godly man, how did a man with a relationship with God, a man who believed in prayer, become the third most powerful man in the nation of Persia? How did something like that happen? How did a foreigner gain that? Were there not among the 50 million Persians nobody that could be trusted? How did he become the third most powerful? Don't you see? That's God's providence. By God's providence, he already had a man on the inside. He already had a solution in the room because God was about to do what God wanted to do and nobody was going to stop God and nobody was going to decide for God. And what did God want to do? Oh yeah, that's right. He wanted to rebuild walls. How silly. The God of the whole universe went to all this trouble orchestrating this thing with great providence because he wanted to rebuild a dumb wall? Wait, 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 wait. Why did the walls matter? I'll tell you why the walls matter. Nehemiah might be early in the Old Testament in your Bible, but Nehemiah covers the time period at the end of the Old Testament. Just a few hundred years later, Nehemiah is drawn by God to rebuild this wall because if Nehemiah doesn't rebuild the wall, there's no Jerusalem. If there's no Jerusalem, Jesus has no place to be born. Jesus has no city to do ministry in. Jesus has no extended family. Jesus has no community. The Old Testament prophecies are gone if that wall's not there. Those walls were the framework by which Jesus' community rose and gave him birth. Do you think it's possible that God might be using you to do some of the greatest works he does on earth and you don't even know it? Nehemiah never knew it. Never knew it. Had no idea. Is it possible that God is using you right now providentially that you are the answer to someone's prayer? Is it possible that God is using you in some tangible and real way and you don't even know what he's doing? God wants to use you to do some of his greatest work and you probably won't even know what it is till you get to heaven. Imagine if Nehemiah would have known, yes, I'm building these walls because Jesus is going to need them and be here. Can you imagine how arrogant we might become? Maybe there's a reason he doesn't tell us. Here's the way you find God's providence. Be faithful. You're doing more than God will let you know because you're working in his providence be faithful and trust his providence there's a story that comes to me through a friend about a, a grandma who taught middle school boys Sunday school 12 and 13 year old boys Sunday school. She taught that class for decades in Biloxi, Mississippi. She taught that old grandma to get ready, get the little bun in her hair. She'd get her little lesson. She'd march into that class. Now she'd say, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. I came to teach you about the Bible. I came to teach you about God. She'd teach them about God. 
How many of you think there were days that she thought, ah, nothing's happening? You think that? You got people in the room not even showering. These are 12-year-old boys. They don't even smell good. She'd probably walk by the sanctuary and people are going, oh, yes, Jesus, we love God. In this incredible environment, and they'd hug each other, pat and love. Aren't you awesome and aren't I awesome? And they'd all go home and then go off to their life. And there she was stuck in the back hallway teaching 12-year-old boys. But by God's providence, from that classroom of 12-year-old boys came 40 three ordained pastors from that classroom. That's a true story. That's a hundred percent true story. Do you think that God might be doing some stuff in you and you don't even get the gravity of what he's doing? I believe he is. Would you stand with me this morning? Every eye closed, every head bowed, I'm going to ask our prayer team, if you would come right now. And here's what I just want to ask you to consider as we pray today. If you're here this morning, you say, my heart is stirred. And as, we, as I listen today, as God spoke to my heart, I believe that God is changing some of my priorities, changing one of my priorities. With nobody looking, would you just lift your hand and say, hey, pray for me today. God's working on some priority changes in my life. There's some things. I see your hand. Thank you so much. The balcony, I see it. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, God's shifting some priorities. I got to get God's priorities. I got to get broken. I got to get concerned about what he's concerned about. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, there's some walls in my life that are gone. There's some protections. There's some safeties. There's some securities. There's some needs. There's some things that ought to have been and weren't. There's some, maybe some things in my family, in my life, in my job, in my work. There's some needs in my life that are uncovered. And what I want to do today is I want to do what Nehemiah did. I want to turn to God first. Maybe you already tried everything else. It's okay. You can start now. I want to take them to God today in prayer. Would you pray for me? Would you lift your hand and say, yeah, that's me. Man, there's some things in my heart. Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, I see your hand. Yeah, there's some things today. Yes, sir. There's some things today I need to bring to God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them to Him in faith. Maybe you're here today. I felt, when I prayed this morning, I felt so specifically that there would be somebody or some people in this service that would say, I am frustrated because I don't know how the future is going to work out. I don't know how, where this is going. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know what's going to happen. But today, you've been stirred and you say, today I need to surrender my worries and my fears in faith to the providence of God. I'm going to turn it over to Him. Would you lift your hand and say, that's me. Uh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, yes. 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Yes. 14, 15. Yeah. Yes, God's, God's working. I want to pray for you, and then I want you, to, I want you to come and let one of the prayer team just agree with you. We're going to pray with you in faith, and we're going to agree that the need's going to be met, the wall's going to be rebuilt, God's priorities are going to change in your life, that you're going to take His priorities on, and that, and that you're going to surrender to the providence of God about your future. Lord, I love you today and I thank you for the presence of God that we feel in this room right now. By your own spirit and by your word, you have ministered life.
Now do what only you can do. In Jesus' name. If you lifted your hand, I want you to come right now. I want you to come right now. I just want you to come and let the prayer team pray with you. Come on. Just take it to prayer. Do what Nehemiah did. In the balcony. In the back. We're going to wait for you. Come on. Just say, would you agree with me? Would you just agree with me? Just agree with me. Just agree with me today. I turn this thing to God. I turn this thing to God. Lord, the future's in your hand. The future's, I trust your providence today. I take a step of faith and I trust your providence. I trust your care. I trust your hand. I trust your guidance. Lord, I love you today. I worship you today. Lord, we love you today. We praise you. Here in your presence. In your presence, heaven does Lord, we bless you today. We thank you today. In your presence, thank you today. God, thank you for all the time you. Thank you for your presence today. In your presence, everything bows before you. lift your hands and thank God for his presence today. Lord, I thank you for your eternal work. I thank you for the presence of God. I thank you for the things that, as we say at Kingwood, only God, only God can do this. We thank you for being here today and doing what only you can do. We thank you for your eternal work, your presence, your power, your strength. We thank you for your mercy today. God, you are great and you are awesome. And you are a covenant God of love. We thank you for it today. In Jesus' name. As the worship team continues to sing, if you need to be dismissed, you can be. Our prayer team is here. If you'd like to stay around, have somebody pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you. Thanks for